What we're seeing here is a mass betrayal of Israel's elite. This kind of elite created this incredible twisted uh, government that we see now, which is, uh, I would say, post-democratic. I mean, uh, we have a prime minister with no public support. And when you think about it, I mean, it's fairly clear that he's a sociopath. Hi, welcome to another episode of the Carolyn Glick Middle East News Hour. Um, joined this week by a very, very uh, old and close colleague of mine, uh, Amnon Lord. Uh, Amnon Lord uh, was actually the guy who brought me into journalism uh, way back when, 22 years ago, when I was still a graduate student at uh, Harvard, and he got me to write my first article uh, in Macquarie Schoen, where he was a senior columnist at the time. Um, and, uh, and so in a way, what, if you like what I write, uh, then, uh, you owe him a debt of gratitude. If you hate it, then he's to blame, of course, entirely. But, uh, uh before I show you, Amnon, I just want to say that Amnon Lord, uh, started out, he, uh, as a, uh, cultural critic, as a theater critic or, a, or a film critic, actually. Film critic. Film critic. Here he is. Here's Amnon. <laughs> Amnon started out his, uh, his uh, career as a film critic, and uh, he slowly, over time, uh, became um, just an avid observer of Israeli culture, Israeli society, and, uh, and then uh, strategic issues. He was a senior columnist and later editor, I think, of Macquarie Shon, where I started my journalistic career with him. And then he moved to Israel Ayom, where he's a senior columnist, um, and my colleague there today, which is terrific. Um, and uh, uh, one of the things that I wanted to talk about with Amnon here, and I'm just going to put it on gallery view since you ruined the whole, hi, Amnon, great to have you here. <laughs> here, everybody, this is Amnon. One of the things that we wanted to talk about this week uh, when we were talking about this um, program is we want to talk about blood libels, because today Israel is in the middle of a new blood libel regarding the death of Shireen Abu Akhle, an Al Jazeera journalist who was uh, standing with terrorists as they were opening fire and shooting at uh, Israeli forces in the city of Jenin last Wednesday morning, Tuesday night. And she was killed apparently by Palestinians, but that's no matter. Um, and Israel is being blamed uh, internationally by the US, by the UN, by Egypt, by, uh, by the media all over the place uh, for this horrible thing, never mind that journalists have died by the dozens in Ukraine or that uh, journalists have been dying <clears> by the hundreds over the past uh, three, 30 years of uh, terror war. Um, but Israel now, this is the crime of the century and Israel of course committed it. So uh, Amnon, I wanted to start our discussion today with another blood libel that both of us know and that you did a lot of work on. Uh, uh, 20 years ago or 22 years ago, which was the blood libel of Mohammed al Dura. Um, Actually, it was uh, 20 years ago. Uh, it was in 2000, in, wasn't in it? 2002. 2002. But no. No, the, it was in 2000. The, it was in October. The event, of the event of the al Dura shooting was on, uh, right, uh, on September 30th, 2000. Right. And this was actually the trigger, the fuel for the second intifada but let me just set the record straight i didn't start as a film critic i did a lot of many years 
I, I did legwork as a reporter, as a writer for Hadashot newspaper. I actually wrote uh, the first uh, major article from Gaza right at the beginning of the first Intifada, just to give you an idea uh, how many years I'm in the business, because this was in uh, December 1987. It's right. a bit uh, shaky to mention this uh, year, right? We're now at uh, 2022. I did a lot of legwork, a lot of reporting uh, from the ground, from the area, from not just uh, in the territories, but uh, in Israel itself, in uh, culture. And eventually I started to write about film. So here's the thing. It's wonderful that I finally am having you on my program so that I can learn things that I should have known, but I never actually did know about a man that I've been close friends with for 22 years. So glad <laughs> to have you on the program so that I could learn it's this. It's a reunion. Apparently. It's a reunion. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, we can... So, so the okay. thing with Mohammed uh, Aldora, let, let's talk about it for a second. Um, should I just stage it just so that people remember if they forgot or learn about it, if they never heard of it? Or would you like to do that? Let, let's say the, the second intifada started on uh, September 28, 2000 in Rosh Hashanah, but it didn't, it didn't do the trick. They needed something, a real trigger for the for mass riots, for violence. And this was the Adura case. It, there was a fire, a crossfire between uh, IDF soldiers and Palestinian uh, police or soldiers in Tzomet Netzarim, Netzarim Junction in uh, Gaza. It was inside the Gaza Strip. And there was a father and son. Uh, the child was... Uh, Muhammad Adura, and there was a television photographer, Abu Rahma, mm -hmm. who uh, photographed the entire scene for many, for quite a few minutes. He was zooming on the father and son who took shelter, supposedly, near the, the wall of the Palestinian uh, uh, compound or something like this. And he captured how the child was hit. And then the, the French uh, network broadcast the, the, the picture. Flans do. It was and, Flans and, do. And uh, I called it uh, a blood libel. But Richard Landis actually gave it uh, the, the distribution the, or the name of the first blood libel of the 21st century. So he also, uh, Professor Landes also uh, invented the, the idea or the coin, the, the expression of Pollywood. Do you remember this word? Yeah, Pollywood is the Palestinian propaganda. Yeah, it's, pa it's a Palestinian propaganda. Yeah, how they staged various scenes on the ground in front of the IDF and uh, got uh, what they wanted on camera. So and let me so, just so so let me just say so just to sum up what happened with Muhammad Aldura is that the twenty minutes of footage that Abu Rahma took never showed uh, what it was claimed that it was showing. I mean, it it uh, 
And, and what, what was released to the world was a very small outtake of, I think it was 20 minutes of film that he took just of this father and son uh, before anything had even happened. Um, yes. And he saw the stage direction that the Palestinians were being told where to stand and what to do. I, I, right? I don't, uh, the thing is that when this was uh, investigated, eventually the, the most uh, responsible result or definition was that the IDF didn't shoot the, the bullets. We don't know who shot it. I don't want to commit myself to the, to say that the Palestinians uh, intentionally shot the, the child because they wanted the picture, but at least it can be said quite conf confidently that uh, Israel or the IDF soldiers didn't shoot uh, the bullets and definitely they, they wouldn't do anything like this uh, on purpose. The, the interesting thing is that uh, in Israel, in the Israeli government, there is now a minister, uh, Nachman Shai, right? Nachman Shai did the research. The research for his doctorate, for his PhD, was the Adura case. And he knows all those details. And yet, after the death of the journalist, Shirin Abu Akla, he said that Israel doesn't have a good record in telling the truth. This is- but you're, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves because we want to talk about blood libels as blood libels and what they do and what their purpose is. And then we want to move on the to- The purpose is to create a wave of hatred and prepare public opinion uh, against Israel to prepare the public opinion in uh, the States, in Europe, to the idea that Israel should be wiped out of the map, should be destroyed. But well, the, I, the I, power I, of this, the power of, the, of this kind of episode is because of the, uh, I want to mention uh, the name of a colleague, a friend, uh, Nidra Poller. She called it uh, little narratives. You know, narrative in Katlanim, little uh, narrative. There was a narrative that was per, uh, produced for a long time before Adur was killed, that the Israeli soldiers have a have a sport to kill Palestinian children, and now we have a child in front of the camera being killed. It's not uh, clear if was, if he was really killed in that episode. And so the, the picture fit into the, the old narrative. And of course, Israel is killing uh, children, fits into the old uh, canard, the old uh, uh, blood libel, the historical blood libel that uh, the Jews kill children. They kill uh, goyim, children. Non-Jewish children. To uh, Christian to children. And well, here, the. Let, okay. let me just let me just let me just say a couple of things. One is that the footage that was taken was not what everybody saw. What Abu Ahmad did was when he sent it to France to he may have actually sent them the whole thing. I can't remember anymore. But what was shown to the world was a very short outtake of what he had yes, filmed definitely. that day. And definitely. and what France too did. This is the French uh, government television station. They allowed everybody to use their footage. And so it wasn't just one 
state television they gave in them France. The footage they give they gave it already edited. The, the main thing to, to remember is that the, the television correspondent, Charles Anderlan, mm -hmm. uh, who is actually an Israeli citizen, uh, was not in the in the area. Okay, because everybody thinks that a true journalist stood there and saw the, the scene. He did not. He got the footage, the raw footage from Abu Rahma, who actually testified that he didn't know who shot the bullets. Abu Rahma himself. So, so but, but it's important that this, this uh, footage, this highly edited footage was then disseminated for free by, uh, yeah, by of course, everybody, all, all the net, all the international networks, all the news uh, so, outlets. So that it was, it. but it was a, it was a concerted Including decision. Israel. It was a concerted decision by France to to disseminate edited video footage that seemed to indicate that Israeli soldiers had killed a child, and then this footage was used uh, at. At, at violent anti-Israel demonstrations in Definitely. Paris, in it, London, it, all over the world. It ignited and fact, the entire Muslim communities in, in France, Germany, Britain, and especially in the Islamic world. Uh, this image was became iconic. Exactly. And you had pictures of Mohammed al-Dura and his father hiding behind a barrel ostensibly yeah. cringing from IDF fire uh, all over. And, and one of the most notable places that uh, it was used was in the execution video, the beheading video of Daniel Pearl, the Wall Street Journal uh, reporter who was killed by Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the mastermind of the 9-11 attacks in Pakistan in January 2002. So um, this, this was used as justification for the execution but, but of Daniel Pearl. Uh, Okay, so it shows you that those horrible uh, events fit into the old patterns. And I think we should uh, take a step back and uh, speak about how anti-Semitism was ignited or reignited mm -hmm. in the last 150 or 120 years uh, ago. Because uh, although the Palestinians actually traffic in Jewish hatred. They wouldn't get very far. Let, let me just mention, when we talk about blood libels or conspiracy theories or stuff like this, today, 15th May, uh, 2022, this is the day of the Nakba, right? It's important. Well, why is it being uh, mentioned or being, uh, or why the Palestinians use it all the time? Wait, 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 no, wait, no. Nakba Day. May 15th is the, May 15th, 1948 is the day uh, on the Gregorian calendar, not the, not the Jewish yeah, calendar, okay, sure. that Israel was established. So the Arab- Israel was established on the 14th. The Arab armies invaded On Israel. the 15th. On the 15th, but for the Palestinians, it's Nakba Day. Nakba means only... the day of the destruction, right? The, of the cataclysm of the great. Uh, uh, and this is I'll like. Bet, your... We can assume, to, we can be pretty sure that in many campuses in the great democracy of the United States, 
they mentioned this day uh, also. Why? This is a complete uh, lopsided vision of the events of 1948. But when you, when you created this uh, Nakbaism, the Nakba day, it's a bit like a blood libel. You invaded Israel, you wanted to eliminate and to annihilate the entire Jewish community in the land of Israel in Palestine. You, you failed. This was the, the epilogue of the Shoah, right? It was only three years after the Shoah. The Arabs wanted to write the last chapter of the Holocaust to annihilate the, the last uh, Jewish community they can lay their hands on, and they failed. Israel survived. We lost something between uh, six to 7,000 uh, Israelis and some 600,000 uh, Arabs fled, uh, fled the country. And we, when we say fled the country, some of them just walked about 10, kilo, 10 miles, 20 miles away and settled here in Palestine, not, not abroad. So, so this is like a big lie. And I, I want, when we talk about the uh, blood libels, I think that uh, we should mention two very important uh, books on the subject. Uh, one of them is a classic, it's called Warrant for Genocide by right. Norman, Norman Cohen. It was actually published in uh, 1967. The other I'm looking one, for I'm looking for my uh, I'm looking I'm going to put you on uh, on speaker view because I'm going to just look for my uh, my copy so I can show everybody. The, the yeah. other one is uh, uh, the lie the, the the lie that wouldn't die by uh, the ex judge Hadassah Benito. Adassa Benito is no longer with us. She passed away. I'm sure that I think that Norman Cohen also uh, passed away a long time ago. Hadassa, Judge Hadassa Benito actually wrote huge research about uh, the protocols of the elders of Zion. And this is really the. Here, the though, main... uh, let me just show you. Uh, this, is, this is Norman Cohen's book. And you're talking about the protocols. So what he does is it's called Warrant for Genocide, the myth of Jewish world of the Jewish world conspiracy and the protocols of the elder of Zion. It came out, I think, in 1968. And what he shows in this book, and it's very important, is that the protocols of the elders of Zion, which is a, a, a forgery that was written by the czarist uh, secret police uh, that claims that there's a Jewish conspiracy to take over the world uh, run by a council called the elders of Zion. It was used as a justification for the Holocaust and almost every other uh, mass murder of Jews it, it that created, followed. It created the culture which uh, of, of genocide, uh, of, of genocide, annihilationist anti-Semitism, of, of a culture of conspiracies, of Jewish conspiracies that uh, the Jews are uh, planning to take over the world, that the Jews uh, uh, control the media, and so on and so forth. And they created a very powerful, and this was not long ago. I mean, Hitler was inspired by it. Hitler and the head of the, of the Nazis, uh, Henry Ford in, uh, in the United States. 
he serialized it actually. Uh, Harry Henry Ford serialized the Protocols of the Elders of Zion in his in his newspaper, and he also published it uh, in English. So he even was, the Times of London uh, published uh, parts of it as a great revelation, but they uh, they retracted the, the the publication because uh, they understood that uh, anyway it was very popular in the States, in England, in Germany. It started in Russia. In Russia, there, were, uh, there was a, a party uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, the Black Century. And the Black Century was actually a preview for the Nazi party. This is Norman Cohen saying, not I. And uh, they even thought in terms of annihilating the entire uh, Jewish population. So you have something like this very powerful. And uh, when you want to go ahead, even uh, John Milsheimer, who is now the star uh, of uh, analysis of the war in Ukraine, he said that uh, Israel or the Jewish lobby pushed the United States to the war in Iraq in 2003 and Afghanistan. And in, in some ways, the, the idea of the Jewish lobby in, uh, in the United States, which is shared by the Israeli left, and uh, it's, it's like an axiom in the, in the American left, the Jewish lobby. The Jewish lobby is some kind of a scarecrow or something. It's a concept which is based on those uh, tropes of the, of the Jewish conspiracy and which is all based on the protocols of the elders of Zion. But to go back for a second to what we're seeing here with the, with the Palestinians and, theirs and, um, and their use of blood libels, I was on a television program uh, yesterday here in Israel, and I was explaining that basically the PLO is a is a walking, talking blood libel, that the, that the blood libel is used, uh, you know, the, the purpose of the blood libel is to demonize and delegitimize and prepare hearts and mind for the mass murder of Jews. Um, and the PLO does both that their political warfare, its goal is to dehumanize Jews, to delegitimize the existence of the Jewish collective of Israel, because the blood libel is never against, you know, Shylock. It's never against one Jew. It's against the Jewish collective. And, uh, and it's a means not to find somebody who's guilty of committing a specific crime, but to criminalize the people, the Jews, through conspiracy theories and through false allegations. Yes. Um, and, and it's not something that you can prove or disprove because its purpose isn't, it's not to find one person guilty of one crime, it's to, it's to criminalize the people and it's to prepare. But again, it's based on, on some single act in which the entire Jewish population is collectively guilty. guilty. Right, guilty. so the IDF kills babies like Nidra Polar said um, and that's the narrative that's been put out for for decades by the Palestinian. It's never been true, um, but it doesn't matter. And then when Mohammed al-Dura uh, died, apparently on September twenty on September thirtieth, two thousand, at uh, Nesarim Junction in, in Gaza, 
um, he was used as as a means to to then demonize, but it's not just demonize and dehumanize Israelis, it's to prepare the groundwork, as you said, in the West and of course throughout the Arab world for the mass murder of Jews. And that is what followed uh, in, in the Palestinian terror war uh, that began in late September, early October of 2000. So it, now, it's both. Yeah, it, That's the PLO, it's that's always the role in the world. Like, uh, one journalist, it's a tragedy, is being killed. We don't know who, who had done it. I, I talked with a, a friend that you know, probably his name, Pinchas, shall we mention him? Pinchas Inbari is the most uh, veteran uh, reporter on Palestinian issues in Israel, maybe in the world. I mean, he follows the things since the mid 1960s. I asked him uh, if he remember any, any journalists being killed in the territories in the last 40 years, because I couldn't remember anyone. He said, no, you're right. I don't remember any incident in which a journalist was killed. So, so the IDF in a way comes, comes clean, it comes with, okay, it's possible that the journalist will be killed in a, when, when you have a, a battle between the IDF and the terrorists, but she was killed and immediately she's in the, supposed to be in the category of Jamal Khashoggi, who was killed in the Saudi consulate in, in Istanbul. This is uh, like the, <clears throat> the American consciousness is being uh, uh, conditioned by such an event which has no uh, connection. So you see the, the ambassador in the United uh, Nations, Thomas, uh, Linda Thomas Greenfield, Jen Psaki, the president, they all express horror that uh, she was killed and they uh, of course condemn it. As soon as you see, you hear that uh, the killing is condemned most people, they can't condemn Israel directly, but they condemn the killing. The automatic reaction is Israel did it, Israel is to blame. Well, especially when you have Democratic lawmakers, Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar, who are coming right out and saying Israel kills everybody, Israel's evil, Israel killed this person just like they kill everybody. And you have the whole BDS chorus uh, claiming that Israel is co committing genocide against the Palestinians. And you go on Al Jazeera, you go on the BBC, you go on any of these. And, and definitely it's more important than the people who were killed in uh, north of New York, right, in the supermarket or all the people, you know, I-, I all, And I all the Jews who were killed, I mean, it's also yes. why, you know, all of the- 20 Jews Israelis were killed in the last couple of months and, and Jews were killed in the last couple of years uh, in America. It doesn't count. Yeah. One journalist from, from Al Jazeera- Which uh, is a jihadist network. A jihadist network jihad. from uh, Prince Hood, from uh, Qatar, who is supporting uh, terrorism, immediately she gets sainthood, you know. Well, it's like Rachel Corey, you know, what are we, what, what was she called? Saint Pan, Saint Pan, Saint Pan, Pancake, you know, who, who got herself. I, I, let's not, uh, you know, she got killed by, uh, you know, 
She got bulldog. killed by a D9 while she was interfering but, but with IDF. Uh, well, no, but the thing is, is that Rachel Corey was killed while interfering with IDF counterterror operations. Uh, uh, let's leave it. Let's no, leave this it, is important. Uh, I know you, you, let me just explain. It's important because then the Royal Covent Garden put on a play called Who, Who Killed Rachel yeah, Corey, yeah, yeah. which was an extension of this blood libel. So that, so that it doesn't matter uh, what the context in which the IDF uh, bulldozer operator was operating in. It doesn't matter what he was trying to achieve. It doesn't matter what kind of terror onslaught Israel was suffering from that area of Gaza specifically, which required the IDF to operate there. It doesn't matter that Rachel Corey was a dyed-in-the-wool Jew hater who had joined a Palestinian terrorist cause for Israel's annihilation, and it was using her position as, as a Western citizen, I think she's American from, from Washington state, uh, to interfere with IDF counterterror operations. None of that matters because she was killed after putting herself into a position where it was likely that she would be killed. Uh, that he, she, was, she was then upheld as a martyr uh, yeah. that was killed by the evil Jews. And then that story, that completely distorted rendition of reality of what happened was then used to perpetuate and to expand and amplify the blood libel of Israel being a malign actor, the collective Jews being a malignancy in the world that deserves to be annihilated. And so again, this is this is very important. This is this is the heart of what's happening today. And when, and then we see that the Biden administration, as you said, and of course all the other usual suspects, have latched on to the story of the Al Jazeera journalist in order to condemn Israel, in order to embrace the concept of, of Israeli malignancy. And, and that's, that's what we're facing today. I, I think the main uh, strategic goals of uh, how to use this, uh, these tragic events is, first of all, it's a very convenient timing. They have triggered a great reaction in the uh, West Bank in the in the Palestinian population for the Nakba Day. They want action in the Nakba Day, and this is a great uh, trigger for it. Uh, the other one is what I called a uh, moral counteroffensive, which means when the IDF or when uh, Israeli forces are being successful in fighting uh, terrorism in the basis of the terrorists in Janine, in uh, Nablus, in wherever, at a certain point, we will see an event like this in order to stop all military action. Now the IDF and Israel in general is sitting back and trying to, to think what next sh uh, should be done. And we are being very careful. We don't know even why maybe the, the forces when, you know, when Noam Raz, who got killed in, in action uh, a couple of days ago, maybe they were too careful, too cautious in their action. And, uh, and this was the, the cause for its death. We don't know. But definitely this kind of uh, killing of, uh, of uh, Shirin Abu Akla creates, it inhibits the military action. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, Noam Raz, who actually is being buried on Mount Herzl at the military cemetery as we're recording this show. Noam Raz was a member of the police counterterror 
Uh, it's an, uh, a unit. A Yamam. The Yamam. Mm -hmm. It's it's one of the most elite uh, counterterror units in the world. And he is 48 years old. This is for professionals. This isn't just soldiers who, who get out when they're 21, 22 years old. This is for people who do it every day uh, as a career. Um, and what I found alarming about the operation that they did in Janina was this um, so Sharina Buakla is killed on Wednesday morning, and, ra and, and rather than recognize what we're walking into, that this is a blood libel, that they're going to use her death to try to criminalize Israel, uh, the foreign minister, Yair Lapid, legitimizes the blood libelers, the slanderers, by saying that he wants to have a joint investigation of her death with the Palestinian Authority, which is a primary organ that's uh, disseminating this libel against IDF forces. So there's absolutely no way that they were going to say yes. And there's absolutely no reason for us to, 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 to grant them this kind of legitimacy while they're engaging in a, in a, in a new blood libel against us and they're organizing it. Um, and then we found out um, on Friday afternoon that the purpose of the Janine operation was to seize uh, was to capture the Palestinian terrorists, one of the terrorists that was shooting at IDF forces when she was killed, uh, because the IDF suspects that he's the one who shot her. And I was thinking about it this morning about how absurd this operation is, because they, they were able to capture this man alive, fine, uh, but Noam Raz was killed trying to capture him, not fine. And um, what do we expect to happen if this guy acknowledges that he killed Shireen Abu Akla, while he's under Israeli custody, in the midst of a blood libel, when they're dehumanizing the IDF, the IDF is being condemned by the White House for no reason. Who's going to believe him? And it's just going to be so that it, the problem is that every time that you grant even a smidgen of legitimacy to the slanderers and to the libel itself, by engaging in an attempt to deny it here in this case, all you do is get deeper and deeper into the muck because yes, the I, purpose I, the purpose of it is not to allow Israel to exculpate its guilt it's it's an alleged guilt it's not to prove that it's innocent nothing that Israel does is going to make any difference and simply by catering to this kind of thing we get sucked in deeper and deeper that's my contention I, I'd, I'd like to mention uh, two other historical events from from Janine and uh, maybe one of them should be the method should be copied. For the first one is the Battle of Jenin in April 2002. Mm -hmm. Cyber you know, the, the great diplomat who's being admired by all the Palestinian lovers, he led a campaign immediately at the end of the, or during the, the battle, that the IDF is doing a, or perpetrating a massacre, about 500 being killed. It turned out that uh, there were 51 uh, terrorists that got killed in, a, in the battle and about, and more than 20 Israeli soldiers. It's not such a, it was a very fierce battle that lasted a few days. I don't remember exactly. I think the IDF or whoever investigated it. it. It could be also uh, that there was some international... Uh, UN investigated in, in, and they came up with these numbers, but a year no, later... I'm not sure. Um, okay, so this, maybe it should be done in this way as long as Israel uh, has representatives who can uh, 
uh, invest or uh, question all the people involved with the journal uh, with the journalists, including the producer, her family members, and other uh, elements in the area, because the facts are important and should be recorded. Of course, the whole thing with the the Jenine battle is that the propaganda thing never died. Remember, yeah. the, the lie who would not die. This is the, the name of the book by Hadassah Ben Ito. Muhammad Bakri, the great actor, he directed the documentary which perpetu uh, perpetuate the, the myth of, uh, or the blood libel of the Jenin massacre. If and we have to remember, what was the imagery that Sai Barikat and Terry Larson from, uh, from the UN and others, Kofi Annan at the time, the Secretary General of the UN were using? They were, they were comparing it to the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. They, they, were, they were calling Israel the Nazis, the Palestinian terrorists in Janine that had booby-trapped almost every home in, in the area of the battle. They were referring to them the as the that as we had... At that time, in 2002, we had unconventional uh, weapon in the international community, and this is uh, Shimon Peres, was the foreign minister, really. Uh, in that kind of historical moments, Peres was very useful. He, was, uh, he, he contributed to lowering the, the flames and eventually to setting the record straight. Even Haaretz, uh, Itona Aritz at that time, Amira Haas, she herself, you know, she writes always against Israel. She went to Jenin right after the battle and she came with those, uh, with the data that we were talking about, that there was no massacre, that there were like 50 something uh, terrorists killed and that there were, uh, all those Israelis uh, soldiers who got killed. But remember that the battle was waged without any artillery support and without any aerial support because the IDF uh, the, or the deputy chief of staff alone didn't want to, to risk any uh, collateral damage. I don't our, know if- Our soldiers then, were collateral damage for our fear of CNN. Of course, of course. The other event in Jenin, which I'd like to mention because it's, it's in a way similar, not a journalist, but the film star, Giuliano Mer. Let's remember the name. Giuliano Mer was one of the greatest Israeli film stars of all time. He was a theater uh, actor and a film act, uh, actor. And he, he was also identified part partly as a Palestinian, because he was uh, the son of a mixed couple, uh, our father, uh, Jewish mother, and he wanted to, to create, to produce uh, a small theater in Jenin. He was murdered. He was murdered 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago, maybe around 2010, he was murdered. Immediately they left and the entire uh, pro-Palestinian uh, bodies in the world, they, they didn't mention it. They, they were, it was something that nobody has to, it shouldn't be talked about. It was, it's, it's, 
it's amazing how they uh, crushed, how they uh, put a wet blanket on this event. He, what's the difference between a film star and a journalist? Well, it apparently just, his politics was the right he, politics. His murder didn't fit any narrative. Right. It didn't fit the blood libel against the Jews. So, so the, the, story, the story and the name Giuliano Mer should be buried with his body. It's, it's you know. You know, you know I, I think that it's important when you say, look, we were able to prove and people showed that only 51 terrorists were killed visa very uh you know uh, versus the 500 innocent 51. women and children who 51 were killed and uh and the claims against israel that continue to this day were that over 500 were killed and that they were mainly women and children so there's absolutely no no connection between the allegation and and the reality absolutely absolutely but but not. here here's here's my my essential point in terms of participating in investigations and all of the rest of it there are two problems with this. One is I woke up this morning and I'm listening to the radio and I'm listening, they're interviewing on the radio, the Minister of Culture, Chili Tropel, about whether or not Israel should be funding this Akko Theater Festival, which is traditionally very far left uh, theater festival, very post-Zionist that's, that's uh, produced in, in the mixed uh, uh, Jewish Arab city of uh, Akko, which was also the scene of, of lynch mobs uh, last year and also last week. Uh, there was an attempted lynch of two two brothers uh, who were fishing in the in the in the harbor in, in Akko, two Jewish boys by uh, or young men by uh, by a mob of Arabs, uh, and they luckily were only uh, moderately injured. But um, the the discussion that they had on the radio with Chili uh, Troper was whether or not the state should fund the production of Janine Janine as a play in the Akko festival, so that. 20 years later, after it's already been proven, the blood libel continues on. And not only that, Israel, just as we were, there was a huge uh, fight over whether the Cinematheque uh, in uh, Tel Aviv would show Janine Janine. So here too, now they're turning it into a play. And the question is whether the government should underwrite this production, which of course the answer is no, but we've, we, we, we're at this point. And the other point that I wanted to make about uh, the allegation about Janine and now from 20 years ago and now the allegation about Janine from last week is that, again, if you accept as legitimate the people who are slandering Israel and, and propagating uh, these blood libels and the main propagator of all of this is the PLO, the Palestinian Authority, even more than, than Hamas, um, then you are giving credence to what they're doing. And that's the problem is that the Israeli left, including Shimon Peres and obviously Amira Haas and all of these other people that you mentioned, they're also responsible in my opinion for the preponderance of these blood libels because they of continue course. to legitimize the PLO. They continue Imagine. to them as, as a legitimate actor when this is an actor that was established and continues to function 55 years later as a walking, talking, um, blood libel machine, both in terms of the dehumanization of Jews and the mass murder of Jews? First of all, I, I'm, I'm all for the, the, the staging of the Akko uh, Theater Festival again. Uh, it will be in uh, Sukkot, right? 
this is generally. I don't know. I, I, I generally, believe it or not, I never go. I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you'll be generally, shocked to discuss. I, I remember a couple of times that I went to this uh, theater festival in Akko many years ago. I think it would be good to, to reignite it, no matter what, even if there are uh, leftists or, you know, we, we live in a democracy that allows anti-democracy and anti-Jewish uh, propaganda to live within the democracy. Tough luck, this is democracy. I don't know if, if we can, uh, we should uh, aim the, at not uh, financing uh, anti-Israeli films, but uh, I don't know about it. I, I, I'm not sure that uh, we should get into it. Uh, we should understand, but you mentioned Haaretz, uh, Amira Haas and all those. Imagine that uh, a few days ago, and actually on the, on the issue of, uh, of Independence Day, there was an article by the, another star who was actually, I'm quite friendly with him, but it's ridiculous, Gidon Levy, okay, Gidon Levy. What did he write? He, he gave leg legitimacy to the UN resolution from 1975 that equates uh, Zionism with racism. He said, wow, they knew something that we didn't know. So he legitimizes the Soviet communist libel, uh, which everybody denied, especially the, the UN ambassador, uh, the US ambassador to the UN at that time, uh, uh, Moynihan, who, who actually declared that the US will not abide by uh, this uh, resolution and uh, you know later on the father of the current uh, president of Israel tore this resolution. Uh, I, I suggest to Gidor Levy to go back to 1952 and check the protocols of the show trials in Prague. Uh, maybe he, he could uh, maybe he will find that uh, the, the Jews who were uh, hanged there, uh, were actually Zionist imperialist agents. Maybe the, the doctors in Moscow were, uh, were guilty. Maybe the pogroms were right. You know, it's such a stu stupidity. You, you know, I don't except, have- uh, Except I don't know that, I mean, I agree with you, you know, saying that, uh, it, that the UN was prescient and saying that Zionism is racism. No, no, I'm, I'm saying, about Gidon Levy. No, today. but that's where it's I want to go. Is that I, I agree with you, but I'm I'm saying that what Gidon Levy is saying. First of all, you know there have always been Jews who are willing to uh, legitimize uh, anti-Semitism because they are anti-Semites because they do think that there's something fundamentally wrong with Jewish peoplehood. Uh, and various other things, whether it's, uh, you know, over time, depending on whatever aspect of Judaism is coming under attack, if it's religion, then you have the, uh, you have the, 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 the Jews are converted to Catholicism uh, in Spain, who were used as the main inquisitors against, uh, against the Jews and these show trials against Judaism and the Jewish re religion. So any, whatever the Jewish collective is, is demonized for, you'll always find Jews who will join the demonizers and Gideon Levy is no different. And, and many of these far leftists are no different from, from uh, the, the Ricardo Cristianos uh, of, of yesteryear in terms of their demonization of their fellow Jews 
and their enthusiastic what, embrace what of that you, cause. But I but all I'm saying is, let, let me just go from there, is that what we're seeing here with, with Giron Levy and, and, in, and in a larger way with his current government that's empowering uh, the Islamist Mother Muslim Brotherhood uh, Party, uh, Ram, in the in the coalition and 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 agreeing to have the joint Arab list, which supports Assad and Hezbollah, among many other things, and none of them recognize Israel's right to. They, def they definitely support Putin in his attack on Ukraine. Right. They. I mean, they support basically all the enemies of of the good in the world, including the Jewish state, first and foremost. Um, uh, they, what we're seeing here is a mass betrayal of Israel's elite uh, in so many, I mean, you had uh, pro-Nakba demonstrations calling for the annihilation of, of Israel at Hebrew University campus, the Tel Aviv University campus last week, uh, where you had uh, radical Jewish students joining with Arab students calling for Israel's annihilation. So, you know, we, we're having this weird thing going on among our elites. Uh, and I think that this might be a good time to, to pivot to that because I, you know, I, I think you wrote about it over Shabbat, and I think I I I, I also uh, spoke about it on the news and and uh, wrote about it. I think everybody's really thinking about it. Is are we going to be able to survive uh, this uh, this uh, this uh, crisis that we're in, where the elites seem to have lost interest yeah. in this country? Yes, the, the main problem is uh, when you have a threat of annihilation, you first have to prepare public opinion in the world uh, for the idea, to disseminate the idea of a world without the Jewish state. The way they, it was propagated that we have to get used to the idea of the world without Jews. Eventually, when, when this will penetrate enough people in the world, someone will try to annihilate Israel. Israel is always on the edge. It's uh, quite a sad thing to, to watch that there is a small minority, but very influential among the elites in Israel, who I, 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 it's almost a critical mat, uh, mess in, the, in this elite that uh, actually identified with the, with the Palestinian struggle and lost any identity with Israel. They don't, uh, maybe they don't want to annihilate it per se, but they don't want it as a Jewish state. And I say that in a way, uh, well, this is, this is the main problem. This kind of elite created this incredible twisted uh, government that we see now, which is, uh, I would say, post-democratic, I mean, a, a, we have a, a prime minister with no public support, with hardly any Knesset member. There, there are supposedly five Knesset members who are in the in the party of uh, of uh, Naftali Bennett. Uh, one of them had to to resign because they didn't trust him. I mean, the entire group that. Uh, Bennett controls in, in the Knesset is not really supportive of him. And this is only because the, the elites in Israel is uh, strong enough to, to manipulate uh, the, the establishment. This is the only reason why he's still a prime minister. I would expect him to understand 
personally that he cannot, Israel in this condition, in this situation, cannot afford to have this kind of prime minister who has no uh, leadership, who has no public support. He should resign and afford the possibility or the, the, the opportunity to create a national government headed by the Likud, by Benjamin Netanyahu. This is the only answer to the crisis that Israel is being uh, put in right now. You're right, but I mean, when you think about it, I mean, it's fairly clear that he's a sociopath. I mean, it's 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 actually. Uh, I I don't want to call him no, names. I mean, I'm not. It's not a name. I I, I think it's a description because because <laughs> what we're no. I mean, look what we're looking at here. Uh, Yomton Kalfon, who is a uh, member of Knesset from Yamina, who was brought in. And, but, but let's not. Uh, no, no, no. It, this is important. This. No, no, no. The reason why I'm saying it is not to digress. Is that he wasn't? He didn't resign. He was forced out. He was and, forced out. Yeah. And and what's because and they what's, didn't trust him. They thought that maybe. Well, even... that may be one of the reasons. Another one of the reasons that's being raised now is that um, from sources inside of Yamina itself is that he was fired uh, at the insistence of the Muslim Brotherhood Party, Ram, that Mansour Abbas demanded nobody, that he nobody, be fired. Nobody can fire a Chavar Knesset. You can That's, fire a minister. You can fire him because you can. He, that he was fired. I mean, uh, they said he was is coming back. They, they they pressured him to leave, but uh, a Knesset member cannot be fired. It's. Uh, but he was a nor he was what's called a Norwegian member of Knesset. He was brought in, and the but, law actually allows them to be fired I, because I, then I, the person whose place they're taking comes back to the Knesset. I, I don't know about it. I don't know about it. But but it the point here is that what we're seeing is is something that I don't know that I mean maybe Ariel Sharon acted well maybe Ariel Sharon acted like this but Ariel Sharon had something that 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 as much as I despised him at this point in his career when he was undertaking the withdrawal from from Gaza and the mass expulsion of all the Jews from Gaza and northern Samaria is that he had public support for what he was doing and. Uh, and I could say that it was it was it was wrong from a democratic perspective because he was uh, he was implementing the agenda that he had campaigned against and that he had won the, the the elections in a landslide on the basis of his campaign against unilateral surrenders to the Palestinians. But um, but still, there were a lot of people in Israel who supported him a lot. And sure, Naftali sure. has zero support publicly. Sure. His his party has fallen apart. He doesn't control okay. anybody at all except yeah. Matan Kahana. He has one other person with him in the Knesset. One out of 120, there are two. His five seat faction is really two factions with him controlling only two members, himself and Matan Kahana. And he has so he has no party after the way that he's treated everybody who is in the Knesset with him. He's never going to be able to form another party. Nobody will ever run with him for Knesset again. And yet here he is presuming to be the prime minister. And that's why I don't think that calling him a sociopath is 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 calling him a name. I think it's a I think it's an a, 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 it's an accurate descriptor. And the problem here is that you know we we have a government that from day to day becomes more and more dependent for its very survival on the two Arab factions, one that's officially a member of the Knesset, which is the Muslim Brotherhood Party, Ram, and the other one is a joint Arab list, which is an openly anti-Semitic party that supports every terrorist organization and Vladimir Putin on the face of the planet. Um, and, it, it, and it's they who decide whether 
Naftali, who's behaving at least in a sociopathological way, um, remains prime minister or not? Yes, uh, it's a very sad situation. At least we can, what we can see here is uh, the connection, that there is a vital connection between democracy, true democracy, and national security. When we don't, when democracy is uh, de deteriorating or disintegrating the way it is now, because we have a prime minister who is maybe legally uh, uh, PM, but uh, it's not a democratic uh, situation. We see that also the national security is deteriorating. Everybody understand that uh, the Israeli uh, security policy, the military counterterrorism uh, strategy is not really what the IDF should have done, but it's being dictated but the, by the red lines of the of the Muslim uh, party, which is uh, part of this uh, lopsided uh, coalition. You know, and, and the thing you're absolutely right, I think that there is, there is a very close relationship between national security and democracy. And I, think, and I think that this goes to the question that I was raising before, which was about where our elites stand, because democracy, of course, and uh, democracy is linked to national security, because if you want to pursue if you want to be able to protect your country, um, its defense, its national interests, then you know you're going to have in an operating democracy a majority of the country wants that to happen. Obviously, most people want their nations to survive; otherwise, they would emigrate, I would assume. Um, and uh, so, if you have a majority government, you're also going to have a government that's committed to national security. If you have a government that isn't representative of, uh, of the majority of the people of course, in the country, then you're not going to have national security because you're course. not going to have representatives who are committed to the to the, to the interest of, of the population. But let let us, uh, Caroline, let us go back to two to other two uh, historical events which are important in perpetuating the the blood libel. All right. One one of them is a very important book that came out uh, by a Russian propagandist by the name of Yuri Ivanov in 1970. It's called Caution Zionism, or maybe Beware, comma Zionism. Uh, Ivanov actually, I, I I would say he rejuvenated or uh, recreated the, the protocols in the language of uh, the post Six Days War, that Israel is racist, that Israel exploits uh, its population, that Israel is uh, so and so. He, I think in that book he also mentioned that Israel is an apartheid state, although the first one who used, who blamed Israel for being an apartheid state, you wouldn't believe it. It's, it's, it's the predecessor of Yasser Arafat, <coughs> Shukeri. Shukeri in 1961 or 1962 in a speech to the UN. To the but UN. don't forget <clears throat> that our, our friend Joel Fishman 
uh, uncovered documents that showed that the first time that Israel was accused of being an apartheid state was, before, in, uh, was in 1965, 67. I think, before. No, no, the in 1962, Shukeri. No, not uh, Shukeri. I'm not talking about what Shukeri said. I'm saying that a UN resolution was passed that referred to Israel as a, an apartheid state was, I think, in 1965. It was like the UN cultural, it wasn't UNESCO, it was some, uh, it was some esoteric UN, UN uh, committee. It was a Soviet resolution. Joel Fishman wrote about it about 15 years ago. And the Israeli delegation at the UN was caught completely off guard, was totally flabbergasted by this event. For me, for me, it's new. But I, in that context, I would like to mention, <clears throat> there was an interview uh, a week ago, maybe, or two weeks ago, in the New Yorker magazine with the Ukraine uh, ambassador to the UN. And he mentioned, he thought it's important to remember that part of the UN DNA is not only the two fathers, Roosevelt and uh, Churchill, it's also the third father of the UN, which is uh, Stalin. He said part of the DNA of, uh, of the UN is Stalinist, and we experienced it. There was no other state that experienced the UN with its Stalinist trends as a kind of enemy, as a kind of a, a machine, a war machine, that produces constantly anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. Okay, let's leave the, the Yuri Ivanov book and uh, skip it and go to, uh, to the anti-racism uh, convention in, uh, in South Africa in 2001. Do you remember? Right. Uh, yeah, the Durban. The Durban, the Durban convention. Some would say that this perpetuated although in, in a new language, but this was a, a blueprint for the annihilation of Israel. In order to annihilate a person or a state or a, a group, you have to uh, isolate it, you have to uh, create, to boycott it, to slander it com completely, to create uh, an atmosphere of uh, character assassination and in the end, there would be, uh, this is how the, the Nazis uh, went into the, the, the Holocaust. They, they isolated completely the, the Jewish people in, uh, in Europe. And so I think this is the intention of all those people who want Israel to be annihilated, is to isolate it, to delegitimize de it, to boycott it, to fight it by legal means, which is very effective, by the way. And this is uh, uh, how uh, the Palestinians and the Israeli left and the international left want to use the legal system, the supposedly international legal system. Uh, you know, in the midst of the Ukraine war, there is a very important article by a guy who is not very friendly to Israel and this is uh, Christoph Heusgen, who was the ambassador of Germany to the UN. And before he was ambassador, he was the close advisor to Chancellor Merkel. Christoph Heusgen. 
part, a great part of his article in Foreign Affairs is dedicated to the illegal uh, or the, the decisions by President Trump to, re to bring the US Embassy to, to Jerusalem and to recognize the, the Golan Heights as a, as a Israeli sovereignty. He said it completely violates the, the international law. As though if the international law will decide that uh, Israel should be annihilated, it should be carried out. Well, it's not just that. I mean, he's wrong, and and he actually has a long. I think my my colleague of uh, he's wrong, he but he had he got center stage in the in foreign in foreign affairs. affairs, right? I mean, this is this is the problem that you have mainstreaming of these lies about the nature of international law and what Israel's legal rights are. And I I would commend to everybody my book, uh, the Israeli solution, just because there's a very long and in depth uh, uh, discussion about the use of lawfare, the use of the law, the language of law to try to criminalize Israel. But here I just, I did find the story about the 1965 um, resolution. Six, so I wrote here, two years before the Six Day War, the Soviet delegation to the United Nations began calling Zionism a form of racism, calling into question Israel's very right to exist. Dr. Mayor Rosen, who served as Israel's consul to New York during the proceedings said, that forgotten episode ironically had a serious impact on the subsequent evolution of world opinion on international law regarding Israel and Zionism. He explained that the Soviet maneuver paved the way for the November 10th, 1975 passage of UN Assembly, uh, UN General Assembly Resolution 3379, which equated Zionism with racism. So uh, the, 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 what, what people don't realize is the long pedigree of the of the canard about uh, the Jewish national liberation movement being a form of racism and therefore the Jewish national project, uh, Jewish self determination itself being being a criminal enterprise, Jewish history being a this criminal conspiracy. The, the Soviet uh, the Soviets understood that racism is the main point. They didn't mention it uh, in nineteen forty eight and not even in the early fifties. But later on, they understood that there are two uh, pariah states, it's uh, Nazi Germany and, and the, the apartheid state of uh, South, South Africa, and Israel should be lumped with... And with, also the United States. The Don't same. forget that the Soviets also used uh, racism in the United States instrumentally to try to deny the uh, the morality of the United States and its fight against uh, the Soviet Union in the Cold War to great effect, because what we're seeing today in the cancellation culture or the cancel culture in the United States and there and the radical left uh, instrumental use of 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 racism, valid, so false this, allegations this of the, racism is the same thing. This is a Stalinist heritage and, and they understood the enemies of Israel worldwide that if you want to hurt Israel, to destroy it, you have to paint it with racist uh, colors. And incident, in, 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 incidentally, I think that what you were saying, or not incidentally at all, I think your point about the Soviets being um, one of the three, or Stalin being one of the three founding fathers of the UN is so terribly important for understanding how the UN uh, became the principal the principal, uh, the most powerful 
organ for the dissemination of anti-Semitism yes, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I think I think that this is a key point that 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 you're citing here from this New Yorker article because if you know, I, I would. No, I, the New Yorker didn't mention it, but they they quoted the Kislitsia, who is the the Ukraine ambassador, as saying that the Stalinist DNA is embedded in the UN. And, and, and the reason why I think that this is critical also, I'm reading the, I, I was, I've been reading it for a long time, I sort of put it aside because it was, a, it was became annoying to me, but I'm reading the bio, a biography of, of Arthur Vandenberg, who was the, one of the, perhaps the most important US Senator in, in putting together the post-war architecture of, of, uh, of uh, the Cold War with, with President Truman. And he was in the UN, he was in the US delegation to the UN in San Francisco uh, after the war. And, and the part that I sort of got irritated with and didn't feel like reading anymore was where he was making all of these deals with the Soviets and how he was watering down uh, the, the, the purpose of the UN in order to get Soviet buy-in to it. So you're absolutely right. I mean, the Soviets played a pivotal role in watering down and, and the, the role of the UN or the purpose of the UN to enable them to use the organization to greater effect than the United States in the intervening years uh, for the purpose of undermining uh, the morality of dem democratic states in their war, uh, their political warfare against the US and its allies. So I think, I think you're absolutely right. It was there from the outset um, and people always forget about it. And that's a key point. And it, and it brings us back to, um, you know, where are, I, I wanna, I really do wanna just spend the rest of our discussion talking about uh, the elites because there's a, you know, I mean, there's so many events that are occurring today in Israel and of course in the United States that could never happen if you didn't have a ruling class in both countries that is overpopulated by people that the dominant force inside of them both are are post-nationalist uh, in the most sympathetic rendition of of what moves them that they're globalists that they don't that they don't feel um an attachment to or an allegiance towards first and foremost their own people but rather to a transnational class of people um, and and this this uh, loss of the of the sort of connection between the two uh, of to the of the national of the nation and the elites of that nation are are I think critically endangering both countries. And Amnon, I just want to I just want to mention to our viewers who probably are less familiar with your work because it's mainly in Hebrew. This, by the way, I think may be the first conversation I've ever had with you that's in English, and you. It's good. <laughs> but, we didn't talk in English ever. I don't know. I don't. I think maybe I I reel off into English every once in a I'm while. Not so I, fluent, I'm not no, so fluent. No, you do great. I I may have to have. I may have to continue talking to you in English. I'm enjoying this. But uh, <laughs> but um, Amnon is is one of the foremost, I would say, uh, commentators on the Israeli left. I mean, you you grew up in a in the cradle of the Israeli left in the kibbutz movement as a kibbutznik, um, and you also made made a journey from left to right. But but you also, you know, you you wrote a biography of Uri Avineri, who is one of the most important people yes. in the radicalization of the Israeli left. Um, and you've written 
a number of books that that speak to the DNA basically of the Israeli left. And so I'd really like to uh, talk to you a little bit about what's happened on the left that, you know, people like Yair Lapid, Omer Bar-Lev, Merav Michaeli, all of these people who populate the Israeli left, Benny Gantz, um, the military uh, brass that's part of the, the left and the, the ruling class in Israel have just gradually and some not so gradually uh, moved away from Zionism in a, in a very dangerous way. Well, it's a very great, it's a great subject. I mean, a huge subject. Uh, if you could try to just distill I, it a I little think bit. The main, I think, first of all, you, you mentioned the term ruling class. It's better than uh, using the term uh, elites or whatever. And I think there, there was a sociologist by the name uh, Professor Chava Etzioni Halevi from Barilan. She wrote and the Israeli elites already in the 1990s, which is quite early for this concept. And she mentioned in, in her concept that it, it sounds paradoxical that the, that the Israeli elite is particularly elitist, which means that they are more detached from the people, that they are more, they feel great superiority over the, the common people in Israel, because in most places, everywhere there are elites. I mean, states, states need elites to lead us in various uh, areas, but those elites feel a bit guilty, a bit, uh, a bit of shame, and they try to make up for, for their uh, supposedly privileged condition. Not so in Israel. In Israel, the elites, feel uh, that their entitled. privilege and superiority is justifiable, that they are entitled to it. Why? Because they built the country. They spilled blood. They're still very close. The elites of today are still very close to the years of, this, uh, of building the, the, the Israeli state. They spilled blood here. They defended the country. I, I know all those people personally. I mean, they they fought in the Yom Kippur War, in the Six Days War, in the in the this war and that war and the other war. Many wars. They they killed many Arabs. Uh, they and they created initially a small community of uh, 650,000 people, which was already a Hebrew community, an Israeli community, a Jewish community in the land of Israel by the year 1948. Suddenly this, this community had to absorb three times over. They, in a way, in order to, uh, uh, to build the state, not just the pre-state community, they, they sort of committed suicide. They, they uh, gave up all the, all the assets, the cultural assets, the, the, maybe the economical assets that they built in order to absorb the, uh, the refugees, the, the Nitzolim, the survivors, from the Holocaust and the, and the plitim, all the refugees, all the refugees 
from the Arab countries, maybe a million and a half total. It's a lot, it's, there's a lot of sacrifice and it's created some kind of a barrier that they're superior, that they're in charge of everything and you are there like a mob and we have to lead you. You don't know what's good for you. There is the saying of David Ben-Gurion, uh, the people don't know what they want. Uh, they, uh, we know what the people needs, something like this. And this is, a, in general, it's a motto of the Israeli elite. We know what the people needs. The people who vote don't know what they need. They vote for uh, Bibi Netanyahu, who, and uh, of course, there is historical divides uh, within the old uh, Jewish community of Israel between left and right. The, the right, the revisionists led by Jabotinsky, you know, it's an old story. They were described by David Ben-Gurion himself and do, not just in the 1930s, but during World War II when Jews when the ashes of a Beitar member and the ashes of a Shomer Tsair member were mixed together in the crematorium, Ben-Gurion called Etzel and the revisionists Nazis, Nazis, not fascists. You have to understand it. People don't understand, they don't realize it. I, I, I discovered it in, in the biography of Ben-Gurion written by Shabtai Tevetich. So this is how they saw the right wing in Israel, a complete boycott, although the right wing in Israel is the cradle of liberalism in the Israeli society. It's complete absurd, begging. And uh, later on, uh, uh, Netanyahu. Netanyahu. Benjamin Netanyahu is the true heir of the revisionism of uh, Menachem Begin. But unlike Menachem Begin, Bibi is a very strong character and he would never step to and say, I can't continue, you know, the way uh, Begin said, Eineni Yecholod. Right, I can't he go on. And he, he proved that his leadership is, is good for Israel, it strengthens Israel. But in order to get rid of him, they would uh, twist any rule and any law and any, uh, any norm of a democratic uh, society. And this way you can see a prime minister who has no public support and, uh, situ and deteriorating situation. Now, I, I think that we're, uh, but I you think... have to understand another thing. Mm -hmm. And in the, one of the most important institutions in Israel, of course, is the Hebrew University. From the outset, I, I take it from my friend, Dr. Uri Cohen, who's a great research, researcher of uh, the Israeli Academy and especially the Hebrew University. From the outset, the, the, those people like Magnus and others who established the Hebrew University thought of uh, Judaism or Jewish nationality, Jewish nationalism as a particularly dark uh, kind of nationalism, not like Arab nationalism, not like uh, Italian nationalism or French nationalism, or God forbid, 
German nationalism, Jewish nationalism, particularly in the eyes of those who established the Hebrew University, was that this kind of is particularly dark kind of nationalism, and it we should be aware of it and should uh, stay shy shy away from it completely. It's Martin Buber, it's Gershom Sholem, although Gershom Sholem was definitely a Jewish nationalist and his letters to, uh, to Hannah Arendt are famous. He blamed her. I saw what you wrote about the Eichmann uh, uh, trial. Right. There's no ain ahavati, I didn't find her ahavati Israel, love of Israel. So here's the thing, we, we, we have to cut it short a little bit, but I, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think that uh, it, it, the, the Israeli elite has been unique in many ways because on the one hand, it really does have, and, and I can attest as, you know, I, I, I moved to Israel, I made Aliyah 31 years ago. And I, I, to this day, I can't believe the vitriol that spewed at me by these old school uh, Israelis. Who, I, I would like also to quote uh, Moshe Shamir. Do you remember the name? Wait, wait, was... let me, yeah, but let me just, let me just uh, finish this. That, that they, they think that I have no right to speak because I'm not one of them. I mean, it, it's, this, it's this absolute- One of us. Uh, you, yeah, you are not one of us. You are not allowed to speak. It, and that's, what's, it, it, that's Yiddish, what's so Yiddish, stunning to me. Yiddish, nicht von unser, lo michelano. Yeah, you're not, you're not one of us. You may not speak. You're, you know, uh, Uri Tzegu was the head of Israeli military intelligence, referred to anybody who wasn't a member of the old boys club in Israel. And he referred to himself without any embarrassment as, you know, a member of the Mayflower generation of Israel. We're the wasps of Israel, he said to us. Everybody else was a deviation from the norm and they weren't allowed to speak. So there's definitely a lot of that. And also, you know, I spoke two weeks ago with Professor Uman and he talked about Magnus and the fact that Ben Gurion didn't think that it was worth going after the the anti-Zionists and Brit Shalom and everything. And here, you know, I think that you also see that the, the Hebrew University was established by anti-Zionists who did not want Jewish statehood. They wanted universalism. They were, you know, products of either in in Magnus's case, uh, he was a, the the rabbi of a reform synagogue and. In, in New York that let, one let me mention you know uh, usually uh, American Jews don't want to hear bad stories about uh, Israel you know in 1972 73 there was a guy like me son of a kibbutz Udi Adiv mm -hmm. was caught was arrested as a member of a terrorist cell of the popular front for and uh, collaborating with the uh, Syrian uh, uh, intelligence. This was a great shock. I mean, a Saba who who grew on a kibbutz in a in a Zionist family and served in the paratroopers, become a mechabel, a terrorist or potential. Uh, Moshe Shamir said about it. Moshe Shamir was one of the great uh, authors, writers in Israel in the past. He died already. He said, uh, why are you so surprised? In the Israeli left, in the Zionist left, we, we educate our, uh, our youth that we have a great family of uh, progressive and great friends, Che Guevara, 
we, we, Mao Zedong, Stalin at his time, uh, Ho Chi Minh, all of them are great revolutionaries and we, uh, and we bow for them. So why are you surprised that one of this family, George Frabash, claims that Israel should be annihilated? And why are you surprised that one of the people that we educated in the left thinks that Habash is also a, an integral, or Yasser Arafat is part of this family of great uh, personalities of, the, of humanity, and he wants, he wants to join the party. In other words, you you get you you get what you he didn't you get out what you put in. If you if you if this is what you're teaching, this if is you what don't you're teach a, a person to live in a cognitive dissonance, and Udi Adiv, who is now a lecturer in the in the Open University, oh, he didn't want to live in a personal uh, contradiction. He joined the fight, the progressive fight, to annihilate the Jews. And by the way, you know, the Israeli left continues to have uh, um, very warm ties with the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. I mean, I think, you know, that's worth pointing out as well. There's something about that. Uh, they get money from the European Union. They get uh, they get cooperation from Israeli radical leftist uh, NGOs. So I think. But, but some of those people are not like this. One of the, the for instance, a person I know, he already died. I mean, I, he wasn't a friend of mine, but I know him. He was the editor of Al Mishmar, one of the main uh, I mean, it's, it's papers uh, of the left, socialist, Chaim Shur. At the beginning of the Second Intifada, he exploded against the Palestinian leaders. He said, I, I personally opened the United States and the Jewish community in the States to those leaders. We convinced the United States to give them visas and suddenly they, they attack us. So Chaim Shur and others like him took a reverse uh, step. They understood that they, that they were betrayed. Essentially, they wanted in a very naive way, peace with the Arabs, with the Palestinians. But when, we faced, when they faced reality, when reality, uh, <clears throat> when they were mugged by reality, by terrorism, they understood the condition and they didn't join the, the blood. No, I think that this <clears throat> is a good place uh, to kind of conclude our, our discussion, um, because I think here, you know, you see this cognitive dissonance, you see this awakening that after you've been mugged by reality, and then you, know, you can take somebody like Shlomo Ben-Ami, who was the foreign minister and the minister of police at, ahead of them at the time of the Muhammad al-Dura blood libel. And he was, you know, very far left guy all the years uh, as a as a professor at at Tel Aviv University, and he came out. He was interviewed by by uh, Ari Shavit and Haaretz, and he acknowledged that, you know, he was a member of the Israeli delegation to Camp David, um, and he said, you know, fundamentally, the Palestinian national narrative is based on a negation of the Jewish narrative and nothing else. They don't have any positive. They don't have anything positive that doesn't have to do with annihilating us. There's no aspect of the Palestinian national movement that isn't about annihilating Jews. In other words, I, I I had, but then- Caroline, I, I had a lot of conversations with Palestinians, in, even in back channel uh, conversations. The two main things that they want is 
זכות השיבה, the, the right, right of return, return, and the right for armed struggle. Statehood is very low in their priorities. Right, so, but, but, what, but let, me just, let me just tap this off because we're talking about blood libels at the beginning. And, and you know, he was, he was a, in a leadership role when the Muhammad al-Dura blood libel was pushed forward, when the blood libel, by the way, of Rob Malley and, and Hussein Aga was published in the New York Times, we're saying no, that- No, I, I wouldn't say that Hussein Aga- Let me just, let me just finish the sentence. That they said that you know Israel didn't offer anything serious to the Palestinians in Camp David, and essentially uh, uh, legitimized what was happening on the ground. And I know you're friends with Hussein Aga, but that that article in the New York Times was a complete falsehood, and it was a complete rewriting so of what had just the, happened. Wasn't it in the New York Review of Books? I I, I thought it was the New York Times. Maybe it was the New York Review of Books. I, I I mean, but but the point is that. You had real-time rewriting of history as it was blowing up. I mean, it was oh, it, like two, like three months later. You know, they were writing this total, total lie about what had just happened. People were there in real time, and they were lying about it to try to justify the Palestinian terror war that was breaking out at those moments. And um, so Shlomo Ben Ami comes out with this statement, and then um, I, I quoted him in my book. And he was at a conference, a Haaretz conference, uh, many years later. And a woman on a panel with him read from my book the word for word what he had said to Ari Shavit. But 10 years later, he had completely forgotten what he had learned in 2000. He, and he started screaming at her because she was bringing up that momentary uh, restor restoration of reason um, and then he didn't want that anymore. He wanted to go back to not believing it, to being able to participate in legitimizing a blood libel or the blood libelers, the PLO. And, and here you see, I think, both the power of the blood libel that never goes away, what it, as Hadassah Ben Ito said, and also the betrayal of the elites, that they would rather continue on on the path of legitimizing the slanderers, the libelers, and be part of that, you know, that in crowd of post-nationalists, then deal with the reality that they saw. One thing I want to say, I mean, whatever uh, Shlomo Ben-Ami says, he's not a supporter of blood libels. I mean, Fine, he's not a he supporter. Became, of, he doesn't maybe, have to be a supporter of blood libels. Although maybe he's not a Shai, great. Nachman Shai wrote a dissertation. You said on on Muhammad al Dora, yeah, and yet yes, here he is. Yeah, you know. Yes. Yeah. So you you can even say that he's not a great supporter of Israel, but he's not a supporter also of a blood libel. But I would argue, my contention here is that the PLO, if you legitimize the PLO, and the PLO uses blood libels as the basis of their operation and has for over 50 years, then you are, you are enabling it, you are facilitating it. And sure. we see this with Nachman Shai in real time that he's sure. doing it today. Sure. So he doesn't have to say, of course, yes. I believe that we're, we're, we're poisoning the wells. But Mahmoud Abbas said it in front of the European Union, the European yeah, Parliament, just, uh, and got, got a standing ovation. I think his wife, uh, when she was uh, escorting uh, 
Hillary Clinton in a, in a, when she toured the West Bank, Judea and Samaria, mentioned that, uh, that the Israelis are poisoning or doing uh, or uh, injecting uh, AIDS to, to Palestinians. No, we were poisoning their water. Something like this. No, so the point is that when you legitimize people who propagate blood libels as a way of life, um, you, you may not believe that Jews are actually poisoning the wells, but what you're doing is you're, you're enabling other people to say that we are and be and, and receive standing ovations in, in the halls of power in Europe. I, I think what surprises me is that we are in the last two and a half years or two, almost two and a half years, there was some pretty good uh, cooperation and collaboration between Israel and the Palestinian Authority in fighting the coronavirus. And you would think that uh, this kind of cooperation would lead to, to good places. No, it led to violence. We see it now. So I think, I think on that happy note, we can talk about, you know, what does it mean when you, when you feed the hand that bites you, you know? <laughs> and so and maybe and maybe we should think about not doing that anymore anyway no. all right i i thank you very much amnon for joining me today and i'll have you back again well i think we should actually devote an entire an entire hour just to the second half of our discussion which is the israeli left because i think it's a it's an and maybe we can talk a little bit about the israeli left and the american jewish uh community uh, because I think that those ties are also incredibly important to highlight. But in the meantime, uh, I hope that you guys got a sense of both the, the danger of blood libels and also the danger of legitimizing the libelers and how it's done in Israel. So thank, thank you for uh, hosting me. Oh, well, now I, I'm going to, and we're going to have to talk all, next time we meet, we're going to have the entire discussion in English because I'm enjoying this. <laughs> okay. All right. Looking I'll talk forward. to you soon. Thank you very much for watching us. And remember, subscribe to my channel, subscribe to the uh, Middle East News Hour and on, on, uh, on um, the podcasts and on JNS and on the Carolyn Glick Middle East News Hour YouTube and, and Rumble channels. And we will see you again very soon. Take care. Thank you.